Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, joined here today for a special interview episode with Dr. One Pagan. Um, Dr. Pagan is a super interesting guy. Really excited to have him on. Excited that our robot overlords are allowing this interview to happen finally <laughs> after uh, so many, so many little kind of audio issues and things. But I'm um, really excited to have you on the show here. So, Dr. Pagan has a, uh, his bachelor's and master's in uh, natural sciences for the bachelor's and biochemistry for the master's from the University of Puerto Rico, and then a PhD in pharmacology from Cornell University. He is the author of uh, just numerous papers and things that you've, you've probably seen. Um, I think uh, 23 uh, PubMed listed articles currently, which is great. Um, two or three books, um, Strange Survivors, The First Brain, and then um, The Voice of the Heart, and uh, does research focused on the use of flatworms as an animal model in pharmacology. So, Dr. Pagan, really excited to have you on the show finally here. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chris. Uh, it's really great to, to finally talk to a fellow math scientist. I'm telling you, man, it's so good. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very, very exciting to have you on the show. So, um, yeah, from one mad scientist to another, the pleasure is all mine, believe me. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit first off about kind of your research. If you were to give the quick elevator pitch to explain what you do, give it to us. Okay, so I, I use planarian flatworms, give them abuse drugs, express behaviors related to addiction, and try to make uh, find ways to take them out of those behaviors. Interesting. Okay, so you are a drug dealer for worms, um, but also, <laughs> but also a worm, but also something of a worm savior, I guess, because you also help them get free from the drugs. So yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so the work the work you do is basically focused on, um, like you said, the use of an animal model for these kinds of specific things that are are present in. Um, that are present in addiction. Why don't you first off tell listeners a little bit about an animal model? What is what is an animal model? What's the point of using one? Um, yeah, give us the go. Through. Well, animal models are essentially surrogates of humans. Uh, not uh, when we're doing research, particularly in uh, areas like pharmacology, which can result in uh, in medications. You got to start small first. Uh, because you will never know whether the compounds that you use are going to be toxic or, you know, or they're going to do more harm than good. So uh, we use animal models to try to ascertain effectiveness, possible toxicity, uh, things like that. Got it. Okay. So essentially, um, the use of these things, and this is this was kind of my understanding too from just reading about these things and kind of their use and, and why you'd use them and everything else. There seems to be something of a, there seems to be something of like a striation of going from things that are, I suppose, less complicated organisms, quote unquote complicated, um, you know, anything bigger than a, anything bigger than a molecule I, can, I discovered was too complicated for me. It's why I didn't go into biology. <laughs> I had to stick to physics and chemistry. I was like, I can't, once you start talking about cells, I'm like, what, what's happening? So, but, so. Uh, that, that's but there, how I feel about physics sometimes. So, but oh, there we right. go. See, it's perfect. So you got the, you got the bigger end of the spectrum. I got the little stuff, right? This is great. <laughs> um, the, but basically that there is this level of kind of, you know, 
if something has to be tested at kind of a very fundamental first scale test stage, we look at things like flatworms or we look at zebrafish or even like flies. But then as things get more complicated, that's when we start looking at like, you know, tests of like consciousness or tests of uh, memory or things like that. You need something that seems to have enough complexity to give us a sense of the effect you're testing for in humans. Um, what, so I'm surprised, I guess, or I was surprised looking at some of your publishing or looking at some of your publications and looking at the work you do that something that I would consider to be pretty complicated, um, you know, the kind of progression and effects of addiction or addictive drugs um, could be tested in in something like a flatworm. Can you explain, I guess, why? So first off, what makes the flatworm such a good model for these uh, kinds of a tests? Model? Yeah. Well, it boils down to, to evolution. Uh, every single type of organism in our planet is related to each other. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's a given. And we share many things, uh, characteristics, particularly physiology and uh, uh, behaviors, for example, that with humans. They share those things with humans. So, uh, we use, for example, uh, organisms that are able to express relatively complex behaviors in such a way that can give us some information uh, about possible behaviors in humans. So we extrapolate what we learn uh, about them. Uh, in essence, the ultimate model organism is people <laughs> because uh, uh, mm -hmm. no drug is ever approved without clinical trials. Right, if, right, right, right. And that makes... So, right. So in terms of what you're testing or what specific models or pathways you're testing, I guess, um, what is it about or what kind of, yeah, what are you testing for? Like, let's say on, on recent work, right? What are you looking okay. for? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, first, I don't try to study addiction per se. Uh, mm -hmm. in the worms, um, uh, because addiction is a very complex phenomenon. Uh, we, we can get addicted to anything, uh, all right? People get addicted to gambling. People mm -hmm. get addicted to, well, uh, uh, alcohol, abuse drugs, things like that. Rather, I'm trying to come up with uh, ways to diminish the toxicity of uh, uh, abuse drugs. For example, for opiates, we have uh, Narcan or Naloxone for when there's an opiate overdose. I know this is a, a, a tricky uh, topic nowadays, but those things save lives. But mm -hmm. for when you have a, a cocaine overdose, for example, there is no compound that's able to counteract uh, the overdose of cocaine. So these are the type of, types of things that I uh, in, uh, would like uh, to develop and to, uh, mm -hmm. as well as to diminish these addiction-induced behaviors. Got it. Okay. So basically, okay. So I, I understand then. So you're looking for something like a countermeasure to those poisonous effects, let's say, or deleterious effects of these uh, abused drug compounds. It's funny, actually. Yep. I, I just saw something on Reddit um, about a, a study and I, you know, and this is something I know I'm sure that you, I'm, I'm sure that in the field of pharmacology, it's a more frustrating thing than it was even for me in the field of kind of environmental science where, you know, a story will come out that says, Hey, we've cured, we've cured X. And it turns out, you know, well, we've in cured, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, right. In mice with this specific gene that's been edited with, you know, that don't have immune systems and, you know, whatever. Um, 
but I saw I saw something that essentially was this idea that if if uh, with relapses, if you could make if you could introduce something to um, people who are let's say becoming non addicted to a drug, you give them a pill or something where the next time they take the drug, it's actually less. Um, the positive effects are less. That that's what they're trying to do with methadone and and compounds like that, mm. and it works up to a certain extent. But the thing is that behavior, human behavior, is extremely complex, uh, and uh, sometimes there's physical dependence as as opposed to psychological dependence. Uh, so that's something that is a well to say that it's a complex problem is a, a, a the mother of all understatements. Uh, sure. As it were. No, right, yeah, there's, right, 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 there's all kinds of other things that go into this besides just the, yeah. if it was just about severing that physical connection, it'd be, one would imagine it would be an easier problem to solve, right? Yep. So, interesting, okay, so what is it about, I guess, um, what, what drew you to this field? What's what, sorry? What, what brought you to do this kind of work? What, oh, what that, developed that, to make that, you interested uh, in this? That's an interesting story, okay, but, uh, I was a non-traditional student. Okay. I did my bachelor's and my master's in Puerto Rico, and, and well, I worked, I got married, all these type of things. And I only went to for my PhD at 35 uh, because of a series of reasons. The opportunity to go to Cornell uh, came, and I told my wife, well, it's Cornell. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we went. Uh, so our our youngest son was born in Ithaca, so uh, that's the, the the best thing I got from uh, from Cornell, as it were. So the thing is that I was working uh, for my pharmacology degree in a physical chemistry laboratory, okay? okay. And uh, I was doing some studies in cells uh, about how to find compounds that could kick out cocaine for a particular protein that it binds to, okay? Mm-hmm. So and that, and that's and that's what I did my thesis on and whatever. Uh, six months before uh, my my graduation from the, my PhD, I was hired at Westchester University. I was actually very surprised uh, because uh, I mean I didn't have a postdoc. I didn't want to do a postdoc. Uh, I, w- I was forty years old. I wanted to, but I I did have papers and everything. But I started well sending uh, applications, and uh, well I got hired. So. I wanted to do uh, my studies to extend the studies, and I started reading uh, about possible models. And I found a paper in which they were able to observe withdrawal behaviors in planarians. Mm. Okay, and and I said, well, that this this looks like a very interesting model. And uh, the rest is, is history, as it were. Uh, I started, uh, I got the model, and I ran with it, <laughs> proverbially. And sure. I've been uh, working with that ever since. Lately, I'm becoming uh, even more interested in the pharmacology of regeneration. You see, that these uh, are the types of worms that you can cut their heads off, and they, they will regrow their heads with brains and everything in the correct way. So if we learn how to properly regenerate brains, can you imagine people with Alzheimer's or that they have, they have I don't know, brain damage from a car accident or something like that. Uh, it, it's something that, that it's, it would be really interesting to figure out. No, for sure. It's interesting that, it's interesting that these, you know, it's one of those things I think that, um, I don't know if you've ever listened to, there's a 
the one of the first podcasts that ever really it is like the first podcast I'd argue was the Ricky Gervais show, which was from um, the comedian Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, and then they had this guy that they kind of like the show was almost like testing this guy on his knowledge of stuff, and you know he had these I've heard about things. it, but I've never yeah. So the guy's name is Carl Pilkington, and it's one of my all-time favorite podcasts. Like it's, I listen to them constantly, still even. I've listened to them like a hundred times now. But one okay. of the things that he's one of the things that he's really interested in is 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 flatworms. He's like he's like you can cut their heads off and they come back, and it, you know he's just so like with childlike wonder how cool these. Oh things my god! Are. I got I gotta meet him at least proverbially. And <laughs> it's it's yeah. really funny. What's funny? What's funny though is. At the same time that he's fascinated by these things, he's also got this, like, he's just a weird guy. It's very funny. I think you'd really like it. But really, though, it is such a fascinating question. I mean, um, so when they when they come back, when they're able to, say, have their brains regenerated, um, one thing I always think of, I know that there was this study done, and again, this is from that podcast, I learned this, um, yeah. where it was leeches. And so they have, like, chemical memory, right? Where, oh, yeah. A leech, so a leech does a maze to find food. That leech dies. Its its body though is consumed by another leech, and then that leech comes. That leech now is able to solve the maze the first try. Is that, that similar that, in flatworms? But actually, those stories were done in flatworms uh, in, oh. in the nineteen. Yeah, yeah, in the nineteen sixties. Um, but they were very controversial uh, at the time. Okay. Uh, because, uh, I mean, some people, uh, the guy's past now. I mean, I don't mean to disparage the memory of the person or anything. Sure. But he was criti criticized uh, for lack of proper controls, uh, things like that. However, lately, an investigator at Tufts University replicated uh, his uh, these results with proper controls, computerized, he eliminated human bias. And yes, uh, the the tail remembers, <laughs> as it were. Uh, you can actually train a, a flatworm to choose something, uh, any type of condition, place preference, or anything like that. Cut their heads off, and when the heads come back, they, the bodies remember better than naive bodies, uh, as it were. Jeez, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, about memory transfer, those experiments have not been done yet, to my knowledge. Okay. But yeah, okay. I mean, that brings you a lot of questions. What exactly is memory uh, stored uh, in an organism? Uh, we all know that, for example, there's not a place in our brains that has the memory of your first kiss, for instance. Uh, there's not a place for that. Uh, the, the brain seems to be completely distributed throughout the brain. That's so interesting. Well, you know, it's... Oh, yeah. It reminds me of, though, it's funny, you know, talking about mad science, it reminds me, though, of those, and this is why this guy liked these stories so much, was he believes in all kinds of things that we talk about on our show. He believes in, like, you know, ghosts and aliens and everything else. And so he was making the argument, he was talking about how it made him uncomfortable to donate his organs because he didn't want someone else to get his memories, and then the guy on the show was like, what are you talking about, right? But, yeah, no. it's, it's not that far-fetched. No, you, it's <laughs> No, if you preserve the brain right after uh, passing, that may, might as well be possible with future technology. Yeah, yeah, uh, I so, agree with him. It's so fascinating, you, I mean. You, you don't want to be my mind. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want that. No, 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 no. Right, no brain transplants. No, thank you. No, uh, no, no, no. Oh, man, that's really interesting. So... Right now, then, you know, one thing I know that's been um, 
one thing that's really interesting, and I know you you kind of mentioned it just now about these, uh, you know, the kind of controversial nature about some of these tests because of you know reproducibility and the ability to actually see these tests done uh, again, you know, when you scale them up. Um, yep. What what particular challenges I guess are there? Because I mean, I would imagine you know. The getting from a test being successful in a flatworm or, or a, let's say a drug, a compound or something being successful in a flatworm, then getting that to become successful in not only humans, but being successful even in later animal models, like more complex things, um, you know, mice, whatever. What are those particular challenges? Like what, what challenges do the flatworm, I guess, as a model provide or, or, or cause? What are those, what do those challenges represent? Okay, well, let's start kind of from the beginning, uh, as it were. Sure. Let's suppose that, that, that you have uh, two people, all right? They get the same, this, exactly the same migraine, all right? Uh, one of the, uh, let's say, person number one uh, needs a particular medication to get rid of the migraines. Person number two uh, will be completely uh, refractory, as it were, to that medication. They, they, they may need some other thing, mm-hmm. okay? And that's talking about two humans, all right? The challenge is even uh, higher when translating research from animals to humans. That being said, that being said, in general terms, the more basic mechanisms that we can study in flatworms is a very good bet that they can be conserved uh, in humans. Uh, for example, when we uh, described the first compound uh, from our lab that was able to apparently antagonize uh, cocaine behaviors in worms, we got a little bit of, uh, of trouble publishing those studies and the referees, uh, actually one of the referees, the proverbial referee number three so is uh, always uh, <laughs> the one. Uh, I, I remember the quote. Uh, the person said, let's get real. These are worms. Okay? Okay. But then we tested that compound. I got into a collaboration with a friend of mine who's a, an electrophysiologist, and it worked in rats. Okay? So we published that too. Okay? So uh, it, it's something that... Uh, we will never know until we try it. That's the nature of science. Sure. There's, it's true that there's some, uh, what they, some people call the reproducibility uh, crisis in the medical sciences and in, uh, for example, psychology. Yeah. Uh, because again, when you're dealing with a huge number of peoples and you, you, sometimes you don't control for the population, sometimes so it, it's, a, it's a challenge, but that doesn't mean that we should stop researching. Absolutely. No. Yeah. I mean, I think so you, so you kind of pointed out two issues there. One is, one is the just basic challenge of if you have a diverse population of people you're trying to treat, um, like you said, there's no, you know, I mean, that's why you do big studies, right? That's why you get absolutely physically relevant number of things. And that's why animal models can be really powerful is because it's a lot easier to treat or test a thousand, um, flatworms and it is yep. a thousand humans right absolutely even uh, you know that even until very recently all human studies were done in men as if women did not exist oh uh, that's they, crazy i had no idea you, you, you know and and, uh, and the physiology of men and women are well 
you know, when a mommy and a daddy love each other very much, you know, the, 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 the physiologists are different, you know. And uh, it's only relatively recently that, that uh, something like this have, has been recognized, and rightfully so. That's wild. I had no idea. And I, I mean, that's, that's crazy. I'm going to have to, yeah. that's, I'm Googling that after this episode. I had no yeah. idea. Wow. Uh, you mentioned that your wife is a, is a science professional too? Yeah, yeah. So my yeah, my wife is going to be a veterinarian. Oh, ask her. She will know about it. Oh, oh, yeah. She will know oh all about goodness. it. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. So she worked with um, she worked with animal models too when she was in a previous life. Let's say she did uh, she did mice as a humanized research platform. Yep. yep, that was something that she did. One of the challenges that always came up, I guess, or one of the things that I think people. One of the things that I think, and even listeners, I'm sure, because we have a pretty diverse set of listeners, right? We have people who listen, um, we have people who listen who are, you know, biologists or, or pure scientists, let's say. Yep. Then we have people who listen who are, you know, people that just have, a, you know, kind of other types of jobs. They're not in the sciences, they're, you know, teachers or nurses or whatever. Um, and so for them, sometimes this talk of animal models or the use of animal models can be kind of uncomfortable. Um how do you get around that? Or I guess sort of in your mind, what around that ethical question do you consider or how do you make sure that these tests are done ethically? Well, that's a very, uh, an excellent point. The ethics of uh, animal experimentation. So that that's one thing that has to be taken into consideration in any type of research. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that most of us are alive because of animal testing. Uh, we're talking about vaccines, we're talking about antibiotics, we're talking about all these type of things, uh, okay? So sometimes I must admit that I would never be able to test, to do my experiments in, I don't know, monkeys, uh, for instance. Mm-hmm. It, it's, too, it's too close to home uh, for me. That's kind of part of the reason why I use flatworms, <laughs> uh, okay, in a way. But at the same time, I do recognize the, uh, the necessity of that the necessity of that. What if the research it's done in, it's not done, for example, uh, in monkeys for a particular reason, and then uh, one of my kids uh, gets sick or mm-hmm. God forbid that dies from, from that uh, disease. You, you see what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. No. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it is a very ethically, um, it's a very ethically challenging oh, yeah. question. Cause again, like you said, it's, it ultimately comes down to this question of, well, you know, if you could save a thousand humans and have it affect, you know, a million um, a mice or something, you know, what's the trade-off, right? Where is that line drawn? And it's not yeah. a comfortable conversation, I think, for people. I mean, it's it's interesting. For my wife, actually, her first job in biology after school was actually as kind of a, I don't want to say like a watchdog, but almost like a... Um, her job or part of her responsibilities were to ensure that the animals used in the animal models through a, a major hospital were treated ethically. Like there was this yep. know, long list of things that she had to make sure of. And they had to have, um, they had to have adequate, obviously adequate food and water and comfort and enough space to be happy. And they had to have all these other things. Absolutely. You know I, mean? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I, yeah, it's, it, it's one of those, it's one of those things that becomes very black and white, I think for people, but there's a lot of people who care a lot about these animals. Um, and a lot of people yeah. who care about people doing these, doing this work because they know how valuable it is. You know I mean? I'll, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, but um, 
with that, actually, we're going to jump into our first uh, ad break here, and we'll come right back. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. And we're back. So again, we are here with uh, Dr. One Pagan um, from Westchester University Biology Department. Um, so we've been talking a lot about kind of some of the more you know, the fundamental science work that you do, right? But another yep. part of the reason why we wanted to have you on is because you're also you've you've also been pretty active in kind of what we call science communication, which is yep. really what the show was made to do. Um, frankly, right? It's this idea of, okay, we all love science. For some reason, our brains are wired in such a way that we really enjoy this stuff. But, you know, there are people who don't, don't enjoy it, who didn't get good science education through schooling or had bad yeah. experiences or whatever. Um, so how do you reach those people? How do you teach them or, or give them insight into the sciences? So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got interested or involved in that part of the field? Uh, well, I, I think it it came with the territory because uh, one of the courses that I teach at the university it's uh, biological sciences for non majors. Okay, mm. so in in that class I have two sections uh, about two hundred and fifty students uh, in each, and I have everything from English majors, theater majors, uh, you know, non scientific uh, minded people, uh, as it were. Okay, so that's the classical uh, lecture where the, it would be a high probability for them to fall asleep. Okay, uh, <laughs> they, they, because just because they don't like it or they think they don't they don't like it. Okay, so uh, over the years, I have developed a, a series of uh, I don't know techniques uh, to keep them uh, interested. So the first one is that I love telling lame jokes. Okay, like uh, that, that jokes, all these type of things. Uh, first of all, I'm a dad, all right? Even though it pays to, tell, to say that all my kids are adults, my youngest is uh, 18, mm -hmm. and, but, but I still do, uh, I still say that jokes, okay? Sure. So that's the first thing. I'm a dad, that's what I do. The second thing is that life is too short to be all grumpy. Don't you, don't you agree? <laughs> I agree. I agree very okay. much so. So, but the real reason why I'm a joker uh, in class is that we are all conditioned to a few minutes of close attention followed by distractions, okay? Uh, cell phones, commercials, uh, I don't know, a little fly that goes uh, flying by, uh, okay? So when I see a significant uh, fraction of, of the class that is not quite here, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, I, cr I crack a stupid joke, I get courtesy laughs or pity smiles, but uh, the main idea is that I reset their attention so they don't waste their time or mine. Okay, so that, that's one thing. Okay. Uh, second, I try to go beyond whatever uh, the textbook says. 
Okay, in uh, uh, science, particularly biology, it's so rich in really cool facts that it's no problem at all, at all to put uh, in the middle of uh, of a lecture two or three examples of really weird things. Okay, uh, one of the ones that I uh, tell them about when uh, we're talking about plants versus animals. Okay, there is a, a type of uh, sea slug, just like the slugs that you see in the gardens and whatnot. But this one lives in the ocean, and it's bright green. And it's bright green not because of that's the, its uh, natural pigmentation, but because it eats a certain algae. But when it eats the algae, instead of uh, metabolizing and digesting the algae, it digests most of it, except for the organelle that deals with photosynthesis, the chloroplasts. So it puts those chloroplasts on its skin that makes it bright green, and they're still studying them. They have not proven that yet, but the current understanding is that these guys use they, those stolen uh, chloroplasts to do photosynthesis. So are they plants or animals? Well, yes. That's crazy. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. Yeah, so things like that. Uh, and I, I give them examples of... Uh, I don't know, for, for when I, I teach them genetics, okay? I have a, a slide of uh, myself in the middle with two, uh, one, two of my kids, one to each side. Each of us have different eye colors. And I tell them, well, my wife's eye color is like this. So here's my daughter. Uh, she has a particular eye color, my son and uh, myself. And I relate the biology uh, for things that are not necessarily from the book but from real life, okay? So a particularly challenging part of biology is to teach evolution uh, because many people do not, well, they do, don't believe in evolution without realizing that there's nothing to believe. Uh, right. It's a matter, yeah, it's a matter of distinguishing between the fact of evolution. Life has changed over time versus the mechanisms of evolution. Okay, so that's where scientists uh, discuss, well, uh, this is uh, the right mechanism. No, 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 it's the, the other one. But mm -hmm. nobody disputes the fact of evolution. Life has changed over time. There's organisms that live 100 million years ago that are not around anymore. And mm -hmm. that's life over a change over time. And I'll let you talk now. It's your podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's funny, actually. You kind of talk about, or you, you basically gave the you basically gave the fundamental thinking that went behind starting this podcast oh like, my oh, it's really great minds all that. i'm telling you man so when when i used to teach courses and i mean i didn't have as much i didn't have as much chance to teach courses i would have necessarily liked to in grad school just because mm -hmm. of the way that my research was funded and everything else but i did get to i did get to ta a lot of courses and i got to teach um you know, it's funny, I, I got to be really friendly with one of the professors, Dr. Uh, Beru's or Barry Sotvat at the Northeastern. Mm -hmm. And he is like, he is very um, well known in the area for being very mathematically rigorous. And so his courses are really difficult and everything else. And so he that, would let. That was my. That, I'm sorry for interrupting. That was my PhD advisor. He, he passed about five years ago at 90 something. Uh -huh. And he was active until his last day. Oh, that's so I mean, awesome. That, that, that guy ha had a mind that, you know, well, 
Uh, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm telling you, that's going to be this guy. He's he still teaches like ten courses every semester. He's a powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, so but we got to become so friendly and everything else. I mean, we both loved math and everything else. That it, I was he let me teach the chemistry portions of his thermodynamics classes because he was like, well, you like that stuff. You know, yeah. <laughs> you you know that stuff better. But so yeah, when I would, when I would teach those courses, I would try to introduce interesting ideas about the philosophy behind the science or, you know, if we're doing a particularly difficult type of math, I would say, well, let's break this down to its simplest forms, right? If we did this and that and telling stories about how the math developed and why we did certain things, all of that is the most, I mean, it's the most important part of science, right? Making it interesting. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Because I mean, we're living in an increasingly technological society and very few people know, what science is and how it works. Right. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's a weird situation where we're, we're living in many ways. Our lives have never been more touched by the sciences than they are today. You know, yeah. I mean, if you went back a hundred years, you could be a farmer. I mean, you'd still be touched by scientific ideas and everything else, but you could be a farmer someplace and really have not, you know, not change anything you do, not see a big change in technology in your lifetime. Absolutely. Today, that's not yeah, the case. <laughs> no, so today, yeah. we're, those changes happen all the time, and yet we are—we seemingly are not as scientifically, maybe not literate, but we're not as willing to take those changes or understand the underlying mechanisms. Um, it's really fascinating. But go ahead, you—you you were going to say yeah. something. No, no, it's just that I, I wanted to ask your permission to tell you about a pet peeve of mine. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead, please. It's just that, again, we touched upon uh, this point a little bit before, that many of us are alive because of science, uh, period. Uh, And sometimes I get a little, uh, you know, irritated when people keep saying, well, no, we need to go back to nature. Uh, We need to uh, reclaim our rightful place in nature. No, you know why? Because we are primates. Primates are prey. In nature. <laughs> uh, so, so you see, we are not particularly big primates either. We are not particularly strong. Our rightful place in nature is to be prey. Right, and it's only because of an unusual series of circumstances that allowed our brains to develop. Uh, we don't know exactly how did that happen. And this is where, why we are where we are right now. Right. Well, it's one of those things. It is one of those funny things where... You, um, what's that joke? There's a, there's a really funny joke that was, you know, with the flat earth thing, right? People, these people believing in the flat earth. And the joke was that they were going to have a conference. Um, they were going to have a conference that brought flat earth, uh, believers from all across the globe. Right. Um, it's true though. There is a lot of, I think, well, in the internet, the internet has apparently, or seems to have made that a, bigger problem i think you know for our, for us on our show we really go we try to become part of these communities of people who i would say are not necessarily um maybe pro science is the wrong word but you yeah. know they're not traditional kind of like scientifically trained believers and things yeah, yeah. so you know we, we're talking about all the way from very extreme where there's people who you know talk about being aliens on Facebook and stuff. And there's thousands of people in these groups and they, they seem to legitimately believe this all the way to, you know, your 
um, your uncle not believing in, say, climate change, you know, from all the way from the gamut of like, you know, on one end of it being like, well, no one really believes this to, well, this is being talked about in politics. So it seems like there's a big contingency of people who believe this other non-scientific thing. The internet has seemed to have made it a lot easier for those kinds of pieces of disinfo to spread. Um, But I guess from your, from your research, what do you think are the biggest, if you had enough, you know, other kind of pet peeves, I guess, other myths, if you had a myth that you could, you could get rid of, or you could educate people on, what would that myth be? What would be the, the myth that you'd want to see gotten rid of? Okay. One of them would be the, the myth that we use like 10% of our brain. Okay. Uh, That's, that's just, well, no, (laughs) no, Uh, uh, we use everything. Uh, uh, um, the things that sometimes we're not even realizing that we use everything, uh, because when we are asleep, uh, our brains, certain parts of our brains are more active than, uh, when we're awake. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, nobody exactly knows why we sleep or even less why we dream. There's a lot of theories about that. So that's one thing that I would like, uh, people to, uh, to understand. I mean, we don't use 10% of our brains. That, that, that's one of the things. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things you hear a lot about, or you, that's one of those stupid movie tropes <laughs> where it's like, yeah. we unlock, yeah. she unlocks uh, uh, another uh, 20% of her brain and now she's psychic and it's like, oh Exactly. God. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing is that uh, science is not exclusive to a few uh, people who are the only ones capable of doing it. Hmm. Uh, okay. So, I mean, with, with proper interest and adequate training, anybody can, can, can do some science. Absolutely. Uh, 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 and certainly understand because uh, that's what I tell my students sometimes science, uh, the so-called scientific method, it's essentially, uh, educated common sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's applied common sense, uh, as it were. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's no secret. There's no secret handshake or secret code or something like that that scientists use to, to do whatever they, they can. And uh, I always say, I think Einstein said it best, that if you cannot explain what you do, your research, to a child, you don't really understand your research. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I think that was Einstein. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it was him, but I certainly didn't come from me. <laughs> so... <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. Some other, some other scientists. No, I, yeah. I completely agree. I mean, it's one of those, it's one of those really challenging parts of the field though, because today as science becomes more and more complicated and more kind of heavily focused on jargon and everything else, there's some, there's some yeah. parts of science that people are, I think more ready to understand or more capable of understanding because of the way that they're educated, you know, com- you know, yeah. computer, computer science and things like that. It seems like there's a pretty good baseline understanding of how computers work. Maybe not soft, maybe software is a better example of that. Um, mm-hmm. But say like chemistry or physics or biology, I'm, I'm always surprised. I, so I still have some students that I tutor that are kind of holdovers from a previous semesters when I tutored them. Um, so I have one student in particular who I tutored in chemistry um, and then now tutor in calculus. And mm-hmm. I'm, it's always so funny to me to hear her say, you know, I don't, I'm not good at this or I don't, I don't want to do science because I don't feel like I'm good yeah. at this. Thank and then, you. Uh, yeah. and, then, and then talking to her and being like, well, no, but you think, 
you think scientifically already. You already have some of those kinds of ways of thinking about investigating and everything else that make you a good candidate for this. And you're great at calculus because you have a wonderful tutor. Right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah. But you know, Absolutely. Really cool, right? it's, it is interesting to me. I mean, you know, at a certain level, science becomes more about um, finding the pattern, right? Finding the thread that's hidden behind the numbers. That's what ends up being the important part. Yep. And a lot more people are good at that than I think they give themselves credit for. Yeah, uh, especially girls. Girls, yes. get, girls, uh, girls have been raised uh, in this toxic environment that tell them, oh, you're not good at math. Uh, you cannot, you know, and, and that's baloney. It's ridiculous. That's it, baloney. Absolutely. Yeah. So with our last couple minutes here, I would love to hear your, it's a question we've started asking everyone that comes on the show with, with expertise in these fields and things that we wanted to have on in, in the next 10 years, if you had to predict, and I know that the prediction game is difficult in science, oh, yeah. if, you, if you had to predict a big change that we will see because of the research that's going on in say your general field or what do you think is a big challenge that will have to get or you hope will be solved in the next 10 years inside your field? Well, there's a couple of levels of that. In terms of urgency, mm -hmm. uh, the, cli the climate crisis, that, that's one thing that, uh, I mean, it's not even political. Uh, climate is changing, uh, period. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, for whatever the reasons, it's, it's changing. Uh, and we need to take care of that. Uh, uh, at some point, in a more uh, clo in closer to home to my field, mm -hmm. how the brain works, uh, and this is a tall order in uh, any way you phrase it, uh, because uh, the brain, the brains, the human brain at least is probably the most complicated machine in the in the known universe, uh, as it were. And this is a cliche, but it's true, uh, at least as far as we know. And we know so little about it that that to fully or to try to understand it as much as we can, can give us benefits that uh, we cannot even begin to list them uh, right now. At the same time, with that knowledge, can, it, it has the potential to bring things that are terrifying uh, in, in terms of uh, privacy, uh, in terms of, uh, I, I don't know, uh, implanted memories, uh, all these type of things. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that those are the, the two things that, uh, oh, that and, and antibiotic resistance. That's another thing. But, mm, yeah, yeah and, uh, right. Antibiotic resistance. That's one, that's one that we went into a little bit on our, we did a series on the history of surgery and, you know, talking about the, the first use of something like an antibiotic and, um, and yeah, it's oh, just, Lister. You, you were talking yeah, about right, Joseph, yeah, Lister, Joseph Lister. Yeah. yeah. It's terrifying that we, it's terrifying to think that we can go back to a pre, um, you know, a pre uh, Joseph Lister style of medicine because yeah. we won't have a way to treat these things. That's so did you know that, that, yeah, no, it is. Did you know that the, uh, the very first person who actually advocated to something, something as simple as washing his hands between surgeries, actually uh, gynecological surgeries, he was ostracized by the uh, scientific community uh, they were. They made fun of uh, of him. He proved that by washing his hands, mortality 
uh, will be reduced, and nobody uh, paid any attention to him while he was alive. I I forget his name actually. Now I'm embarrassed. I didn't know we were talking about that. So <laughs> you're good, man. <laughs> you know. No, no, you're fine. No, it's it is. It's it's a it's one thing that oftentimes it's really funny. That's one thing that oftentimes it's gets kind of pushed our way from people who are less receptive, I guess, to our skepticism. You know, yep. um, people who are really big into these like UFOs or anti-vaccination movements or whatever, they'll say, well, science is wrong all the time. Yeah, but the beauty of that is that science, science is wrong all the time, but then those people who are proven right are, are put forward, right? This guy yeah. um, is now looked at as a, as a big change, right? Lister, same thing. Like th- these, yeah. are important, um, these are important people now. Um, anyways, well, Dr. Pagan, it was such a, an honor to have you on the show. I really, Love really honor is mine. Yeah. Oh man, please. I, I, we, we gotta have you come on again sometime soon. Oh, for sure. uh, my, my pleasure. I loved it. Thank you for the invitation and, uh, call me on because my title is for the students. <laughs> All right. <Oné. laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, Please go check out some of the work of uh, Dr. One Pagan, uh, Strange Survivors, The First Brain, both available on Amazon. Um, check out his website. Check out his Twitter page. Um, it's at Bald Scientist, which is a great uh, – I mean, <laughs> that one up quick. That's a good Twitter name. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, please uh, join us again next week for another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all? And you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt. The ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words. My story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing.